Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. everybody, Chowan here, and today I am super excited because I'm talking to another woman and an Asian woman who is just really well respected, wrote like the book, like I haven't actually received the physical book yet, but it's like a book that's like probably like this thick, it's called Holistic Tarot. Um, she's written several books actually. She's also created like this metaphysicians like day planner she does tarot cards she does all this stuff plus she has like a day job as a corporate lawyer so basically i'm hoping my mom doesn't watch this video because she's gonna be like what are you doing with your life because benabelle is like doing this this and this so <laughs> but i'm so excited to talk to benabelle when thank you so much for speaking with me today benabelle hi thank you for having me talon and you know like before this interview started Officially, we were talking a little bit about how awesome it is that we're talking to another Asian magic person. There's not many of us around, which is, well, you know what it is? Like, I keep wondering about this, right? Why do you think that there's so few visible Asian magic people? I think it's because, actually, I think a lot of us have this mentality that, you know, a lot of our old ways or traditions are backwards, and actually magic is very much, even though it is, of course, part of the Western tradition, it's very much tethered, when we see it, when we practice it, it's tethered to the older ways, and so there's a lot in the most recent history of China and Taiwan and even Korea, where that has been sort of pushed aside as backwards and replaced with Christianity or replaced with communism. If you come out and do videos or have a platform all on magic, that's just not something you're going to see a lot of Asians do. Just the same way you're not going to see a lot of Asian artists, you know, stigma associated with it. Yeah, I guess for me, like, you know, I, ju I just like lived three years in Korea and then I came to Bali just about two months ago, three months ago. And in Korea, there's a resurgence of indigenous religion. Yeah, but, yeah. But, I mean, until maybe about five years ago, like, any sort of spirituality was restricted to Buddhism and Christianity. But now it's, like, terrible. Yeah, it was very Christian. Yeah, super Christian. So it's also one of those things where I'm thinking, like, you know, we both grew up in the States, and we both had I think probably similar cultural upbringing because you're also from the East Coast like me. How yeah, does... Yeah, East Coast stations, right? How is it that you are able to keep like this incredible indigenous magical sort of spirituality that wasn't so Christian or so Buddhist? I would have to attribute that to my mom. I mean, it's because even though sort of in the culture, a lot of people believe in magic, believe in reincarnation, believe in, you know, ghosts, spirits, and all that stuff, 
in any society, the number of active practitioners is going to reduce dramatically. And so because my mother and my grandmother and my maternal grandfather all practiced, so they were, I mean, that's what my grandfather did. So my grandfather, he made money by, you know those street peddlers that push the carts of like tofu and like perishables? So that's what he did for a living. And then on the side, he would basically do forms of witchcraft where he would do traditional Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, where it's more spell crafting than it is actual forms of medicine. And he do a lot of sigil crafting and uh, exorcisms and also shamanic journeying as a form of healthcare and form of psychological care for the people who couldn't afford actual healthcare. So because that's part of my family, matriarch and the patriarch, all my aunts and uncles, all my cousins, it's always been in the family. So I never ever saw it as occultism or esoteric. It was just part of my upbringing. Um, talking to the dead was the same as talking to your alive relatives. And I think that's why I was able to keep it alive. You know what? Like a lot of Asian families, I mean, yeah, on the surface they may be Christian, but they're different than like the, you know, the Joneses who live next door who go to like a similar church, right? Asian people, there's like a, I want to almost say like, not exactly superstition, but there's a magical aspect of our daily lives that we just take for granted because, you know, it's just part of our thousands of years of culture, right? Like, you know, just being like, oh, in Korean culture, dreams are really important. Like when people have dreams that seem prophetic, it's taken super seriously, right? It's like, it's things like that. You mentioned that your your family um, is from Southern Taiwan. Communism never entered Taiwan. And then when you look in even Taiwan, there was, uh, you know, Japanese imperialism, Portuguese imperialism. But then when you get to the rural parts of Southern Taiwan, where you really, they retain a lot of that old tradition because they didn't have a lot of the exposure to the outside world. So I think that was a huge part of it. You actually wrote a book about this, right? Man. Yeah, the Dao craft. So I wrote a book on food talismans and forms of Eastern sigil crafting. Maybe one of the ways that I found you was I was looking up just Asian magic that was like written in English. And I think your book may be one of the few books written by an Asian person about Asian magic in English. Most of the books about Asian magic are actually written by white dudes, you know? So I think that's why I was stunned that I was just like, holy crap, Annabelle Wen, Wen sounds Asian. And then I looked you up and I was like, oh my God, she's like a young chick. I didn't want to write it. The second book, um, I wanted to, so the reason I started writing the manuscript was to leave a legacy for those that came after me within the family. Because I learned that a lot of what my came before me was all oral tradition. And it was never written down, primarily because nobody was literate. Because they didn't come from a, a high place of education, a lot of it was maxim like, oh, you just do this because you have to do it that way. There, there were never any explanations. And so what I wanted to do was the academic research behind the magic and try to um, link it to a history in, in dynastic China, imperial China, to the alchemists of imperial China, and see where that lineage comes from. And that's what my book is all about, linking what my parents sort of, you know, like down-home, street-level peddler magic, how that connects to a greater history in, in, uh, in China. And so I felt like it was, you know, I felt like I really needed to write down all of these things before I lost the previous generation. You know, because I lost my grandmother's generation without writing anything down. So that's gone. That's just done. And so I was like, well, you know, I really need to start writing things down before I lose everything. And, and then it just eventually became a book. 
I didn't want to publish it, but the reason I published it was exactly because there are no Asian females writing on this topic. I mean, I don't want to say none, but you know, like that was one of the primary motivators for me to actually publish it. So what's one of the things that you learned while doing the research where you were just like, so that's why grandpa did it that way, or oh my god, now that makes sense. Um... I guess, so one of them was, a lot of, I guess, for example, um, calling the quarters, so what they always did was um, the north, south, east, and west had to be, um, had to have certain deities, and so north was Beidi, um, uh, you know, east was Dongwang, just different deities for the different directions, and I kind of just thought they made it up, because I didn't, like, like oh, or maybe it was just my mom and dad or my family that did it. I didn't know it was, like, a bigger thing. And so, sort of doing the history and learning that the four directional deities comes from folk Chinese, like, Taoism and how, like, just, it goes way, way back to the, at least the Han Dynasty. So, I think that a lot of my audience, they maybe have heard of the word Tao, or Taoist for the first time today. So, I'm sure they could Wikipedia it, but... What is Taoism? Oh, man. Know, right? <laughs> That's why I'm asking you, because uh, they're probably going to be like, what the fuck? You know, this is just so overwhelming. Uh, well, so what I find interesting is um, Western perceptions of Taoism is very much rooted in philosophy. Being Eastern artifacts back to the West, they were most often Christian missionaries. And so they would keep the parts that made a lot of sense to them or that they really liked, but the parts that got a little bit too cray-cray for them, they would like kind of just leave out. And so, for example, example, the I Ching, when the I Ching was brought to the West, it was brought as philosophy. And they kind of left out the whole occult, magic, divination, sigil crafting part of the I Ching. And so Taoism has sort of become this binary of exoteric Taoism, which is a philosophy about, you know, how to live a life that's more organic, that's more sort of in, flow, in the flow with nature and in, in flow with natural forms. And there's esoteric Taoism, which is how to manipulate nature and use the energies of nature and spirit realms to create, recreate your own reality. So that part gets conveniently left out when, when Taoism travels from east to west. But because I was raised with the Taoism from the East, for me, my perspective of Taoism was always that it was magic. And it wasn't until I learned social studies in school that I realized Taoism was, you know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't know Taoism was a philosophy till I learned it in school in America, in the United States. Um, my definition of Taoism is that there is this alignment of um, human energy, my qi energy, shen energy, which is like spirit, um, like an energy or, or plane of a realm of spirit bodies, and then something beneath. And then it's just about how to work with it either um, in submission to it, so your life is easier, or how to control it so you can recreate things in your own life. So that's Taoism to me. I'm so glad that you brought that up, because I think that people in the West they love to take what in the East, like we see as being magical traditions or even sort of godly traditions. Like most people in the West don't realize, but Buddhism, there's a lot of gods there. There's a lot of demons and lots of gods. You go to any like Buddhist temple in Asia, you see statues of like scary looking demons and stuff. The thing is, is that, I mean, one of the most renowned atheist thinkers in the West, Sam Harris, he's all about Buddhism, right? It's sort of like, Sam. Do you know Buddhism is all about then spirit? So yeah, they just conveniently take out all the spirits. And then it's oh, yeah. just left with the philosophy about 
emptying your mind, just be still, be zen, all that. That's not how it works in Asia. Yeah, it's interesting because, so I always see it, it's, I, that's why I like using the term exoteric and esoteric because it's not that it's not the philosophy and emptying your mind and said like, it, it, but it's just that it's more than that. It's that plus, you know what I mean? And so I think that's what often gets lost in translation. It's not that, I'm not saying, oh, it's mutually exclusive or it's not, Buddhism is not that. Buddhism is absolutely that. But they just take, they just can be, like you said, they just leave out the parts that don't make sense to them and they cherry pick the parts that they like. Maybe this is what you mean by like when you grow up in that culture, it's like you don't need to ask for like specific, like you kind of know like how things are supposed to taste or when things they just seem right. Like when you grow up in Asian culture, there's like movies that you watch or TV shows that you watch. You know, like I remember when I was young, I, I watched that there was this like kids TV show about Sonogong and I don't know what he's called in, uh, in Chinese, but it's like the Monkey King, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, she, uh -huh. And it's like things like that, like in your formative years, you know, and I remember watching like Kung Fu films that weren't shown in like in America, because you know, these were like from Hong Kong and stuff, like the millions of Kung Fu flicks that they had then. And it's just like all these things that as you're growing up, it's like, oh yeah, of course, you know, like long time ago, they used to be able to fly through the air. Like, you know, there's like those movies where you have like the palanquins, it's like they're not going on land, right? They're actually going through air. And yeah, right, right. it was just taken for granted. Like, that's long time ago they used to be able to do that. Like, you know, you were able to, like, work up your chi or whatever, and you were able to, like, travel that way. And I don't know about you, but that was just, to me, it was just like, oh, of course. Let's, you know, we don't do it now, but back then, that's what, that's what they did. And to me, that wasn't superstition. When you're growing up, like, what were some things about... Asian tradition and Asian magical tradition especially that for you were just like oh yeah of course commonplace talking to the dead would be the biggest one um or sort of the, the blurred line between life and death I I think I, I I learned in the west that there's a very distinct boundary line between life and death whereas that was not something that I was raised with you know what I mean so that was something that I had to learn when I was here having dead people sort of walk amongst you or, or communicating with them on sort of a somewhat regular basis or having them visit you or consulting the dead, treating it like they've spoken back at you is something that I think I take for granted. And it's not really as commonplace in the West. You bring up ancestor veneration, and that's a huge thing, especially in any Confucian culture, right? Chinese or Korean culture. What sort of experience do you have in terms of ancestor veneration? I think for me, it's it's just, okay, so every home should have a nexus point, like an ancestor altar, a nexus point where um, your ancestors can come in. And so there's this belief that if you don't have an ancestor altar, then they're blocked from coming back. To their, the part of their soul cannot come back and see their see their uh, forebear, like their their children or their great great grandchildren. So you need to have um, you know a kind of altar in your house, a bridge between the different worlds, so that they can always come back. And then because the altar is set in a very specific way, usually there's a, a picture of a Buddha or there's deities on the altar itself, and part of that is a form of shielding, so that only the ancestors can come back. And when you burn incense, there's two different kinds of um, like joss paper that you burn, gold and silver. Gold is always for the deities and silver is always for your ancestors. So these are things that I've always done. And then 
pretty much every solstice and every equinox, you're supposed to remember your ancestors. There's tomb sweeping day, there's ghost festival, there's all these holidays throughout the entire year where you're, oh, I gotta go remember to, you know, put out some rice, put out some food for my ancestors, burn incense, and, and so there's this idea that they're constantly with you. you. You never really forget about them, you know, and so the dead aren't just for one day or, or just something that you think of. It, it's a part of your life, and you invite them into your life. I totally get where you're coming from, because, okay. you know, like in, in Korea, there's actually two holidays, they're like national holidays. And one of them is Chinese New Year, and the other one is like Salai, which is kind of like Korean Thanksgiving. And during those days, we're talking millions of Koreans on the same day. They're talking to their ancestors, and it's just like part of the thing, you know, like you create all this food, and then you just put up like the names of your ancestors, and then, you know, you ask your ancestors to help you with the New Year, or you ask them, you know, to bless the food or whatever. And it's like, that's just a natural part of life. And I almost feel as though people, they do it not because they necessarily believe in it, but because that's just the way it's been done for generations. You know what I mean? Which makes me wonder, what do you think about magic as a technology versus a belief? Like, I'm a big proponent of, you don't have to necessarily believe in it for it to work. Every form of hard science, every form of physical science we have today, um, its, it's forebear is in magic, alchemy, astrology, whatever have you, it's always in magic. You need to have that intuitive mind in magic in order for you to, um, plus analysis and education to then transform it into science, you know? And so even all of, like even Isaac Newton was like a blow, like a crazy occultist, you know? And so you see a lot of that mixed together. Um, I see that reason for having faith is more the placebo effect. So, and I don't discount. So when people say placebo effect, they think it's like this dirty word, right? I don't necessarily agree. I think it's a wonderful thing to work with the placebo effect, but the faith and the belief system comes in when you're activating the placebo. But when you're using magic as a technology, I don't think you need to believe, or you can cast curse or a hex and the person doesn't even have to know that has happened. It still happens because you're moving unseen energy in a way that's almost scientific. My story is that up until about two years ago, I was like a hardcore material science atheist, like hardcore atheist, right? So I just had this, I was constantly triggered by any sort of talk about spirits or anything like that. But I decided to have like a neutral mind and go into like doing magic, not with any belief, but just to do the rituals. And what I found was the results I was getting, it would be very clunky to explain it away using science, but it was very elegant to explain it using energy or using more magical sort of vocabulary. And sometimes I wonder, like, am I just justifying? Like, you know what I mean? Like, maybe it was a coincidence. Maybe it was just this, this, and this that could be easily explained. And yet I'm trying to, you know, like now that I'm like into magic, now I'm trying to say that, oh, it's magic. But then I think to myself, you know, a lot of science, it was it's so magical. magical. It's so magical, and until the right instruments are created to measure it, a lot of things that were considered magical back in the day, we now know to be scientifically provable because we have better microscopes, we have better telescopes, we have, you know, like, what are those? Those particle collider thingamajigabobs, you know? <laughs> I don't even know what they're called, but now they exist, and now we can be like, oh, yeah, of course. So I think science in a lot of ways, it's oftentimes four or five steps behind magic, but it's going to catch up soon. 
internet is really magical. I think the fact, like, I have no idea how, I think I know more about ritual magic than I know about how the internet works, you know? And then when you look at quantum, I know, uh, so one of my big pet peeves is when people keep talking about magic and quantum physics, so I'm like, oh, come on. But at the same time, you know, uh, for example, the Schrodinger's wave function, like, there's so many concepts within quantum physics that you're just like, what? This is real? You know, so for example, the belief that, you know how you have, like, a barrier, right? Um, and then you have, like, a ball and rolls to the, it rolls toward the barrier, almost all the time it gets stopped by the barrier. But one time, like one out of some, you know, statistic, and there's a, there's a whole formula for it, it actually passes through the barrier because of the whole wave particle something something. I'm not a scientist. So it's like, holy crap, you know, that, like, if you can, if you're a scientist and you understand that, that you can actually explain magic. Because I'm not a scientist, I can't use that vocabulary, but I have an intuition that can really understand, you know, that concept through magic. And I think that that's very powerful and it's a real thing. So intuition, for example, you know how there's a science to cooking? I have an intuition about cooking for some reason. So I can put in the lobster tail. I don't even have to set the timer, and then I just intuitively know when to take it out. But if you actually went back and reverse engineered the science, it, it matches perfectly with science. And I'm just saying that to give an example of how psychics and diviners work in a way that might be parallel to how science works. It's just that we're not using the same terminology. There's something like innate in us that just understands how science works. So we go at it with our sort of folksy way, but it's still science. So have you taken those um, personality tests, like the MBTI? The thing about those personality tests is that the way that it's interpreted, it's not just like you take the test and then it tells you you're 55%, I think, or and then, you know, 45% of feeling. Like, it's actually about looking at the functions. So I'm so curious to like, because I'm, I'm kind of going to peg you right now as okay. an... I'm going to guess that you're an INFJ. I'm an INFJ as well. Oh, okay. And one of the reasons why that I'm pegging you as an INFJ is that INFJs, and this is also a reason why INFJs are considered magical or psychic. Oh, and wow. But the thing is, it can be explained through the way that they think. What they do is they create a microcosm of the macrocosm in their mind. So they're almost taking what they see in the world, they're seeing patterns. And just intuitively, but in a way it's not even intuitive, it's just the way that their mind works, they're able to create almost classifications within classifications. And so they create a humongous database of patterns of what they consider to be, oh, when this happens, 70% of the time this happens, you know what I mean? So they create all this, and the way that their brain is wired is that when something happens, like in the future, because they have all this data inside their mind, they can say with great accuracy, I think this will happen next. To other mm. personality types, it seems like magic. It's like, holy shit, you're psychic. Not really. Mm. INFJs are really good at just noticing patterns. Different personality types are better at, you know, some personality types, they're better at seeing patterns within machines. Some people are good at seeing patterns within people or within societies. Other people are really good at feeling energy. And it's all explained within this MBTI system. But it's science, it's psychology. So it's not necessarily like, you know what I mean? So it's not super like magic, yeah. like it doesn't always have to be like Zeus, like giving you some magic sprinkle dust on top of your head. It just could be yeah. the way that your brain is wired. So I'm guessing that you're an yeah. INFJ because the way that you express yourself is very INFJ-ish. Oh. By the way, INFJs are notorious for being really great cult leaders as well. So if you want to start a cult, 
One of the things that I'm just constantly impressed with in terms of what you do is that do you, first of all, do you sleep, girl? <laughs> like, do you? Because it's like you're writing all these books, you're doing all these like tarot things, and you have like a corporate job. I do sleep. Um, I actually don't sleep a lot. So, for example, I go to sleep around 12, between 12 to 2 a.m. is when I go to sleep. And I wake up um, around between 5 and 6 a.m. So I don't, I sleep about five hours a night, and it doesn't sound like a lot. But you know those, um, you know those things that can measure your sleep? One of the things that my husband found really fascinating is almost all five of my hours of sleep is REM sleep. So I sleep very well. I don't know if that I don't know if that is part of the factor, but I don't have to sleep a lot. But once I'm so when I put my head to pillow, I'm out, and then I don't when I wake up. So like the amount of REM sleep I get is actually a lot more than most people. Do you even procrastinate? Like I feel as though like I can't see you just like watching Netflix for hours and hours. Um. So I, I don't like to the re I I don't mind talking about my schedule. The reason I don't like talking about it is because it's unhealthy. You know, like I I'm very aware that it's not the most health the way to live and that's the reason um, I, I think I overexert myself and so I will pack in the day and I won't have any minute of free time or, or downtime and then I'll go like that for you know two three weeks and then I crash and then for an entire weekend I won't even get out of bed so I'll sit in bed and literally watch the shittiest shows on Netflix marathon style off my iPad from bed like lying there and the only time I get up is to refill my mug of coffee you know what I mean? Like, and I won't even shower. Like, so I do crash, and then I, I'll give myself an entire weekend of just like literally doing nothing, and then I'm, on Monday I'm back, and it's and it's not a healthy way of doing things, but I think that's how I manage to be as productive as I am. Your schedule sounds a lot like mine. Like, one of the reasons why I moved to Bali was for my health because I was also working like a regular job. But then, like, I would come home and then I would edit videos. So I was getting, but unlike you, unfortunately, I can't get, like, five hours of sleep. I need, like, at least seven or eight. So I wasn't getting in a lot of uh -huh. sleep. Sometimes I would only sleep for three hours. It's unhealthy, but I kind of feel as though that's sort of the sacrifice one has to make if you want to do. Like, there's no, you know, that's the trade-off. Like, yeah. I don't know how else to explain it. Like, there's no life-work balance when you're trying to do this stuff. You know, so um, this I created a tarot deck, and one of the um, cards is the Six of Wands. You know how it's always this victory, happy card? It's always considered a very happy card. Um, and so in mine, it is a happy card, but one of the wands, the one with the victory leaf, is stabbed into her leg, and she's bleeding from the leg. But the woman is, she doesn't look like she feels the pain. There's no expression of pain on her face. And so for me, that was very, very sort of poignant, personally poignant, because it expresses how I feel about success and achievement, you know? You really don't get to the top without taking a lot of personal pain and sacrifice. I notice, especially in the new age communities, there's this sort of this illusion about what success really is, where there's this weird sort of romanticizing of success and achievement. That, And they're just like, oh, just, you know, do whatever you love, or only, you know, follow your bliss, just be happy, and then manifest your, like, riches and stuff. And I just like, I mean, like that's just not how it works you know and and at least not for me maybe somebody else can make it work like that but for me it's a lot of um personal sacrifice and a lot of sucking up the pain and not talking about the pain in order to achieve maybe this has a lot to do with us being children of immigrants <laughs> our parents just bust their ass like i don't think i've ever seen my mom take a day off work for being sick or anything like that like you know and 
And the thing is, you're so right. This entire concept of it shouldn't feel like work. Like, if you're doing the right thing and you're following your bliss, it should just feel like play constantly. And I'm just like, no. That's just not true. So, for example, I love the tarot. I love art. I love creating. So, for example, creating my tarot deck was something I loved. That was following my bliss. That was a passion. I like the customer service aspect, the business accounting. Like, that's not my bliss. That wasn't fun. But that's part of it. If you don't do it, if, the, if you choose not to do that, you won't have a successful tarot deck. And so you can sort of extrapolate that to anything, even magic. When you look at to have enough power to create the highest form of magical manifestation, there's a lot of sacrifice. It's not just, oh, today I'm just going to do a ritual. Ritual begins many, many months in advance where you're looking at your diet, you're looking at your lifestyle, you're cultivating the energy within, you're drawing down different energies into your surrounding and your environment for many, many months in advance before you actually do ritual magic. And so, I, and that's not, that's a form of sacrifice as well. Do you consider yourself to be part of like this new age movement, or do you consider yourself outside of it? I consider myself outside the new age movement, but that's just how I self-identify. I mean, how other people identify me, I'm cool with it, but I don't consider myself part of it. I just don't resonate with it. You know, I, I just find that um, all of the people who have the like everything that I study or see or observe about what is the new age it's not in line with, with how, how I practice or how I view these esoteric concepts, you know? And so I feel like, for example, like chakras, let's just take a simple chakras or auras or even the tarot. I feel like they skim off the top and then they, they run with that and then they sort of, you know, ignore all the things below and all of the, 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 the depth of all of these different practices. And so that's why I don't think I resonate with it. Um, side note, so I think Phil Hine he wrote a book recently about chakras, and you know I follow the work of uh, Dr. Harish Wallace, who is a Sanskrit scholar, uh, and he's translating tons of stuff, like actual, like you know, source material. Guys, the chakras—they were actually places to put in gods. It wasn't just like, oh, you know, it's like red and, and sparkly, and it just like spins. No, 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 it was for gods. So let's just get that straight. And again, like what you were mentioning, you just conveniently take out the things that don't resonate so well with maybe the Western ideas of what Eastern esoteric thought should be, which is sometimes you just got to put in the spirits. Yeah, there's so, there's the energy, like, you know, qigong, acupressure, um, acupuncture. So they're sort of all sort of in the same family of the concept of chakras. And so there isn't just the, the meridian, the vertical meridian is sort of the, it's kind of like your um, your backbone, right? It, it's sort of the, the main grid system and then there's all of these other sub like other points linked back to the main the main meridian and so it is energy and it is sort of that you know fun stuff but then it is like you said if you look at the language there's this idea of um, working with the chakra system to height to to add a form of divinity to enhance or transcend your current consciousness so yeah there is sort of the again esoteric versus exoteric side of chakra systems let's first talk about your tarot deck it was a runaway success like it sold out like that and I think you're doing a second print of it, right? Or was it that you're going to revise it? Or yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about this tarot deck that currently is just like completely sold out. I think everybody who does tarot um, 
secretly fantasizes about creating a tarot deck. But it's always just been a fantasy. It's not something I ever took seriously. And in fact, it, it actually started in social media, which is so hilarious because it's so serious to me and it is very much an occult practice and very religious and spiritual. But I can't deny that it started as a tweet. You know, I tweeted, I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to like, you know, create a tarot deck. And then like the next day I was like, why not? Like, why don't I do it? You know? And then so I was like, okay, you know what? I'm not going to do it for other people. This is just a tarot deck for me. I'm going to draw, like, it's going to be a hand-drawn tarot deck, kind of like sigil magic, where I will have my own tarot, like, literally my own tarot deck of 78 original line drawings, and I can use this deck. And, and so when I said it was just for me and not for publication, it really took away all of that, like, anxiety and insecurity. Do you know what I'm saying? So what had stopped me from ever creating a tarot deck before was because I was like, oh, I have nothing to contribute. You know, who am I to create a tarot deck? I'm not even an artist, you know, and so that always inhibited me when I said okay this is just for me the inhibition was gone because it doesn't matter what it looks like it's just for me and then after I finished it it took me about 38 days to finish all the all of the cards and then I just did the research to figure out how to self-publish it and then I self-published it and then seven days later it was sold out so it all happened within six months I created my first line drawing for the tarot deck to Selling, shipping out the last deck and delivering it to the last customer within a span of six months. And guys, I just want to impress upon you that this is a woman who has written one of the definitive books about tarot. Plus, if you've seen her blog and seen like the drawings that she does, I mean, your skills in drawing are super legit. And despite your expertise and your skill level, you still felt as though, who am I to create a tarot deck? I guess we all deal with well, imposter syndrome in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think, I think we, well, we all have it. I, I think everybody has it, except for sociopaths. I mean, unless you, for some reason, think you're, you're such an egomaniac. But, like, I think everybody who's sort of normal is going to have that. But I think it's also because I have so many tarot decks. I've read so many tarot books. I'm just like, everything's been done. Like, what, what do I have to contribute that's going to be different? And I think, and I know it sounds so fluffy and UAG, but it is true. Like, you have you to contribute. Let's pretend that you're outside of you, right? And you're somebody who's there to sort of like pitch or to explain why you're... This is my way of like trying to get you to kind of like show off a little bit without feeling bad about it. Why your tarot deck is so legit and so awesome. I, I took it so seriously. So I was like, okay, you know, it's going to be a synthesis of the Rider-Waite-Smith deck and Crowley's Thoth deck. And so I was like, well, how am I going to do that? Not only am I going to read the books, because so I've always been about like, you know, the, the physical and the metaphysical have to always go hand in hand in everything that I do. Even in something as like my, my, my legal practice, it's not just, you know, the legal research, but I'm always, you know, putting in my own sort of energy into it in a way that is very occult. And so I do that in everything. So with this tarot deck, I think for me, what I did was like, I'm just going to you know, the, you know, go go big or go home, right? So I was like, I'm going to do evocations of, you know, both of them, bring them into my home. And so I was very much about like, go big or go home. I'm going to take this all the way. I'm not going to half-ass this thing. So I read every single book that I could think of that they would have read from the 19th, 18th and 19th century. And it was just something that I really was like, I'm just going to, you know, stretch and stretch myself to my intellectual, artistic, and magical limits. I don't know if that is why it's unique, but... I mean, I really, really push myself for this. In every single way you can think of, I put, I maxed out my capabilities. I could also add to that, like, just the fact that, yes, like, you're, 
you're basically starting off with like, you know, I kind of see your expertise as, you know, when you're like making rose oil, you need to take a shit ton of rose petals to make a little bit of rose oil, but you need to start off with a lot. So your mind is like that. It's just so much information. And like you mentioned, um, you did your homework. Like you're, you weren't yeah. like totally like bullshitting. You were, you were told, you read all these books, you ingested all the information. You've been a practitioner for years. And again, as I mentioned before, you have the, the skills to create the art. And there's, of course, you with your background and your energy. That's like when you're drawing your... Because, you know, I remember like when you were um, showing like your book of shadows or your book of spells, like that, that personal book that you have. And when you're drawing these um, pictures, you're actually putting energy into each of the figures. You know, you're not just like doodling. Yeah, I only work with consecrated ink. I only work in ritual space. So it always began with setting ritual. Yeah, I'm just, I'm very like, go big or go home. That's just my personality. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why people are just like, anything Venable. Like, I am not a huge tarot person. And I heard about your tarot deck too late. But, mm -hmm. I mean, if I had known earlier, I would have snapped up one, of course. Because it's just like, the things that you do... Like, guys, just go to Benabelle's website and just, like, look at all the things that she does. It's, like, everything that you do is so, like you said, go big or go home. Like, everything's consecrated. Everything is, like, meticulously researched, you know? Everything is, like, 60 pages of research first to, like, create a distillation of something. It's, like, the rose petals and to, like, the rose oil. So I could think of a million reasons why, like, this tarot deck that you created, um, it would sell out so quickly. And I'm a little bit bummed. <laughs> that I wasn't able to get, like, a copy, but it's great to hear that there's going to be a second run. Do you know when that's going to happen? Um, I'm working on some of the redesigns right now. Um, there's, again, it's, you know, go big or go home. It's the same deck, but energetically, there's a lot of different things that need to go into it. And so um, I would say sometime in, you know, the first or second quarter of 2019. Was there any magic that you were doing to help the process? So what's interesting is um, how I, well, I was very, I had to do it a very specific way. So I have this theory about how, about creation, you know, the origin story, you know, how energy was created. And so the way I drew each card followed that. So it was, you know, the majors because that's the primordial energy. Then it was, you know, the aces, twos, threes, and then it's fours because, so there's this, because four is when, you know, the spirit realm materializes into an earthly realm. And so I skip all the way to four. So there's this idea of like how I did it was very much, it was very, very methodical. I don't know if that's magical though, but it had to follow a form of magical theory. So everything had to follow theory. Everything had to be very methodical. Um, so like I said, I had evoked, well, what, what the whole concept was to commune with my holy guardian angel and then having my holy guardian angel present while I listened to Wait and Crowley and use their dictations to craft the structure and the sort of symbolism in every single card. You mentioned your holy guardian angel and you mentioned mm -hmm. Crowley um, mm -hmm. and you mentioned dictation. So first of all, have you had any experience doing like the Abramelin or like KNC with your HGA and stuff? Is that what you're talking about or is it just, you know? Well, so... Well, yeah, so the oil that I use is based on the um, oil of bromelain, um, but that one, the oil of bromelain is actually a, a slight variation from the oil from the Book of Exodus. 
And the reason, I speculate the reason for the um, slight change is because um, in the book of Exodus, it says that only certain types of priests are allowed to craft the oil in the specific recipe of the Bible. And then, so then you have the oil of Bromelin in the book of Bromelin the Mage, and then Crowley has his own, you know, anoint, holy anointing oil as well that's slightly different. So I did all of the research all the way back, and then I worked with um, the oil of Bromelin, but then what I did was I did biblical, biblical research, and there's this idea of what is um, sweet calamus. The way they translate it between the Latin Vulgati to English, uh, sweet calamus is usually this form of root, but the root itself doesn't smell very good, and it smells so awful compared to you know the other three. And it doesn't actually fit fire, water, air, and earth because there's only four. There's four uh, resins that go into it. There are four different types of uh, herbs that go into it. So they would follow fire, water, air, and earth, and then the magic you create is the spirit. So sweet calamus doesn't really fit in as well as lemongrass, and so a lot of Bibler said that the calamus is actually the translation to lemongrass, and so I use lemongrass. And so there's a lot of the little things that I researched into in order to trap the deck. So I use the oil to um, create this uh, sacred space. I anoint myself, um, and then I, I do a lot of sort of personal grounding before. I, I have to put myself in a certain meditative state before I start. And then that's where the oil comes in. And then the uh, frankincense, incense is always burned. And that's also from what I read in um, uh, from the book of Exodus as well. And so I, I do use some of the grimoires, like the Abraulin grimoire, but I, I kind of want to know where they got that. And it's always from the Bible. It always goes back to the Bible. And so I wanted to sort of, I did a lot of reading, and I also looked into Persian magic because where did a lot of the concepts of guardian angels came from? That actually came from the uh, Pravashi in Persian magic, and it came from Zoroastrianism. So then I had to read Zoroastrianism and read all about Zoroaster to get a sense of the origins of this concept of the guardian angel. I've always been collecting rose petals for the last, you know, three decades of my life, and then it was the last six months, I was like, hey, maybe I should make rose oil, you know, auto rose oil, because I think you know, that there's rose auto, and then there's some other kind of oil, right? So this is rose auto. So let me make rose auto oil um, out of everything I've been reading for the past, you know, three decades of my life. So, yeah. And the tarot deck is sort of that, right? It's all that yeah, yeah. knowledge. It's rose oil. <laughs> it's the rose oil, yeah. and it's made into that physical form. I love that. I think a lot of people, um, myself included, like we just think of tarot decks as just, uh, you know, just like art. Like anybody can do it. Because, you know, like there's that tarot deck that did really well on Kickstarter a couple years back. What was it? It was like Rich Bitch tarot deck or something like that. I forget. Or some sort of, you know, and it's sort of like the deck that you give to the girl who's going to Coachella. <laughs> you know, that's just what it is. And it did really well, and so I always thought, oh, people are collecting tarot decks because the artwork is cool, and it looks like super cute, like on your coffee table. But I never really thought of it as something more magical than that. So when you're telling me about all the thought and all the magic and all the occult knowledge and expertise that went into your deck, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why, like, instantly, like, when I heard about it and I was so bummed that I couldn't get it, I was just like, I want to get this deck from Benabelle. Because everything about your blog, your YouTube channel, your books, everything like that, it just shows, you know, like, 6,000 pages of, like, just, like, knowing about the occult, like, distilled into that thing. Like, you also have a YouTube channel. That's something that people may not realize. Yeah, I mean, it's a shitty YouTube channel. No. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, like, 
like, literally, I do have a YouTube channel. I just, I wouldn't exactly, like, go around bragging about it. Okay, guys, her YouTube channel is super cute. Like, she actually wears, like, these, like, fairy wings, and she has, like, a, a Sailor Moon sort of like. I'm Ben the Bell, but you can call me Bell. This is one episode in my Tinkering Bell series. In the Tinkering Bell series, I showcase my metaphysical and esoteric tinkerings, a practicum based on my particular idiosyncrasies in the craft. I love it. I love it. It's so cute. I was just like, oh my god, I wish that I had thought of doing that too, you know, like, sometimes I'm just like, maybe I should like put on cat ears or something, and it'd be, if I do, it'd be totally inspired by your channel. And what I like about your YouTube channel is that it's like you giving like a really, like, and it appeals to sort of like that former atheist, like, give me the evidence, give me, not just your opinion, support your opinion, right? And that's what you're doing. You're supporting your opinions about the occult and about cultural issues surrounding the occult um, and going on like very detailed, like substantial, um, I would say sometimes like rants, which I totally like I'm all about. And one of the things that you've talked about is like, like the, this issue of inclusiveness, cultural appropriation, and also just what it means when you're not like a white person in the occult world. And that's a topic that's very important for, I think, us to talk about because not many Asian occultists, right? Like visible ones right now. Tell me a little bit about your experiences being an Asian person in the occult space and why you, you talk so much about it. So, um, when I wrote Holistic Tarot, and I did, when I first started all this stuff, I had no intention on sort of bringing in any of my own views on social justice or even making the, that fact that I'm Asian a factor. Like, it became a factor because other people made it a factor. I never, you know what I mean? Like, it sounds so innocent and stupid, but it is kind of like that. Like, I'm just like, oh, tarot, tarot, tarot. And then, like, when I'm an Asian American social activist, I'm not talking about the tarot. It's like a very political platform, right? And so I saw the two as very separate because this is my time away from the political limelight to really talk about something that's just really interesting to me, which is the tarot, which has nothing to do with my culture. Um, but I think I started realizing I had a platform. You know, I, I did, you know, I have to acknowledge I did have some kind of a platform. And I don't know how you feel, but I, I feel like when you're an Asian American um, or a person of color, there is this almost irrational responsibility to represent, yeah. you know, and I kind of felt like I see something that's going on that's related to my culture or my race or, or the, the social issues that I face as a person of color, why wouldn't I use that platform to speak up? And if I don't use that platform to say what I see to, to speak up, then what am I worth? You know, what, what's the point in having that platform? And so that's really what drove me to talk about some of the hard-hitting issues like, you know, uh, social like social justice issues and also cultural appropriation issues and, and being a POC. And also even like how... Um, even though I have very nuanced opinions on cultural appropriation, like how Reiki, you know, manifests or how chakra, like how Eastern concepts of esotericism manifest in the New Age West. And so I don't shy away from that because I feel like I almost have a responsibility as a person of color to use whatever platform I'm given to talk about it. One of the things that I've realized, you know, like I've been doing this interview channel for about a year now. Like before it was a mukbang. So I was like doing like food shows, you know, but 
as I've been doing this, one of the things that I realized was that just being a woman in the occult space, that in itself is, you know, that, that's pretty intense. I think being a person of color and a woman in the occult space, that's intense as well. But being Asian, that's like super fucking intense simply because like literally, like it's very, very, very difficult to find. Like I can't, I'll be honest, like I see you, me, maybe like one or two other like male Asian ones, but I can't really think of more than five or six like off the top of my head. So because there's so few of us, of course, we're disproportionately like representing, you know, there's not like hundreds of us so that, you know, like all our different experiences can be, you know, shown like all the different sides. Like it's just like five or six of us to like show all of these. And you know, there's Asian occultists in Asia, but they don't speak English like we do. So there's that as well. Or maybe they don't, they didn't grow up in the Western world. So, you know, like, again, we're like, trying to like be the bridge here. One of the things that you talk about a lot is oftentimes how the occult space is not welcoming to, to Asian people, even though like they say that they are, but they're not. Can you talk a little bit more about that? You know, it's really funny that, um, you know, like for example, at PantheaCon, one of the things I haven't talked about before was like somebody just was giving me an unsolicited psychic reading. Like I didn't even ask for it. I was just sitting there minding my own business. And then this white woman came up to me and just was like, you know, your ancestors are talking to me and they're telling me to tell you that you like tea or so something about tea, right? Like, I'm like, okay, that, that seems, you know, like just weird, like kind of like, like weirdly stereotypical stuff or like they'll be like oh I can tell you're a very powerful sorceress because you have the power of your like just dumb shit that like kind of like harkens back to my race and my culture that I'm just like this is so bizarre right like even if like giving you the benefit of the doubt like even if let's say for real if my ancestor came through to you for some reason and not me even though they don't speak English so I don't know why they go to you and not like some other bilingual in the room but whatever let's say that really happened I feel like tea would be the last thing that they want to mention things like that I always find very interesting or they'll be like 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 my the, for example tarot right? people will want to talk about how I'm Asian but I'm like no no let's just talk about the the, the deck or let's just talk about the major like they want to kind of like bring in my my cultural background but like like the intention is good but the result is that it makes me feel like an outsider right because it feels like oh you're not actually pagan you're you're just bringing in this really exotic thing that you can teach us for 30 minutes and then we can integrate your exotic thing into our pagan practice and then goodbye you know and so i've never felt like i was part of the pagan community just a visitor to come in to give my expert opinion on something super super asian and then i'm supposed to leave and then they can take that really asian thing and run with it and mix it with wicca so that's always how i kind of felt about my membership or my relationship with the pagan community um i call it the gwyneth paltrow spirituality effect you know like how it's it's sort of like the the well-meaning um, white girl who's like looking for herself trying to have a eat love pray moment and so she like needs to go to Asia or she needs to go to South America to get that she can't get it like she can't just go to like I don't know Paris yeah, maybe she does but she doesn't do it for like spirituality she goes to Paris to like eat baguettes and like buy shoes but spirituality you know you got to go to Bali which is where I'm right now and I see that everywhere in Bali right now um, just and 
tourism, a lot of it is catered towards these like women who are trying to find themselves. And so they come here and they pay tons of money for these yoga retreats. Um, and I guess it's different in Bali. That's what they're thinking, right? But it's like they're going to go back home. They're going to have a ton of like really great Instagram photos. But it's like, did you interact with the locals? Did you like really learn how they live? Did you learn their magic? And the local magic is very different from the, the magic or the spirituality that these yoga retreats are, are handing to these women. So I guess that's it too. Like They would never teach it. They, they would never teach it though. That's the thing. So if you are part of the um, actual initiatory, um, you know, mystery traditions in, in East, at least in China, um, they're very, very, so one of the things that I'm very vocal against is I'm, I'm against the initiatory traditions that are very strongly you have to Asian or you have to have a certain legacy in order to even be initiated and so if you want to talk about Chinese magic the, the legacy the lineages there are really really exclusionary and extremely discriminatory and then what they do is they have this sort of like they cut out this little cookie cutter thing that they put out for tourism for spiritual tourism and those a lot of the sort of Westerners are invited to and they learn sort of the like bits and pieces of the trinkets and they use that to make money and that's very, very much a form of like commercialism for these magical traditions. But there's there's this huge line that they would never ever teach because these magical traditions are extremely discriminatory, and I I hate that. But anyway, yeah, sorry. I just wanna it was a rant. I just had to go off on a rant. I wonder though if that's also a way to protect the tradition from, I guess, subconscious shadowy imperialism. I think a lot of people who are not Asian who are learning these magic traditions they don't even realize. They're coming in with the best intentions, but that imperialistic thinking is like deep. That's like generations, right? And it's just like in Bali, like foreigners can't buy land in Bali. They can't own businesses in Bali. They need a Balinese person to put that business under. And then I think after a certain amount of years, I don't know, like 50 years or something, the land reverts back to the Balinese. Like this is a way to keep, I guess like, foreign interest from coming in and taking over the culture and taking over like the land. And I think that people are kind of like people of color, they're they're in two camps, right? One is that, you know, let's try to include everybody, white people included. There's the other camp that's just like, nope. If it's not in your blood, then don't do it, right? Yeah, so it's interesting, a lot of the East Asian um, countries are like that. In the Philippines, I think it has the same business rules, a 60-40 business rule. Every single business in the Philippines has to be 60% owned by a native Philippine. Um, anyways, but yeah, so I actually disagree with my mom. Um, my mom has a very uh, secrecy, like she's very much about like, don't talk about these things, don't share these things. She, she's very um, like she puts up a wall, you know, I find that she, she feels like the, there are certain things that should be only spoken about in certain circles and you should never teach it or share it or talk about it. Whereas I, I guess I don't have that attitude. Um, I have a very sort of share and, 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 and try to put it, there should be no occult as in, um, hidden, you know, as in concealed when I say occult, you should put everything out there and let people, um, you know, sort of, Either they will latch onto it or they won't latch onto it. But you should never intentionally hide anything. But that's a very different view from most Asian attitudes when it comes to magic. Yeah, and it's like, on one hand, we want our ancestral magic to be better known. You know, like for me, a huge thing is that I want more people to know about Korean shamanism. It's 
it's amazing, you know, and it comes from Siberian shamanism or shamanism. So it's incredibly powerful and it's practiced by women. It's also practiced by LGBTQ. So it's about a, a sort of like a disenfranchised group of people that's like rising in power and the way that they're doing it now, they're like, they have YouTube channels. They have like, you know, like live streaming on Africa TV, which is like kind of like the Twitch of Korea. So now it's like, it's becoming like, they're taking back this like esoteric occult power. So I would love if more people talked about it. But whenever I see people talking about Korean shamanism, it's white men. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a tough one. Um, for me, I I just don't I don't draw that line. I think everybody has their role to play, and there's somebody out there who is going to be the person to to talk about these things and work through sort of the more political aspects, the social and political aspects of of, of craft. And one of the interesting things about you know how um, in Eastern magic, a lot of the times it's, it's very much about women or um, people who are gender fluid because there's this idea that magic or that 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 what can create magic is in yin energy, not yang energy, it's in yin. And so whatever has more potent yin is going to be able to tap into sort of the, the, the energy of the occult better. That tends to be people who are women or who identify as women or who are gender fluid that have a lot more yin in their personal constitution. And that's why they tend to gravitate more toward the intuitive arts. One of the things that I think the accessibility of Eastern magical and esoteric uh, traditions has brought to the West that's very healthy is an acknowledgement of that yin energy, right? The ability to be still, the ability to like go deep within rather than project out constantly. Um, so in that sense, like that accessibility to that knowledge is extremely useful. Um, I guess then naturally the question goes towards, okay, so you're trying to put information out there and trying to make it accessible. And I would argue that the amount of free information that you give out is incredible. It's like volumes and volumes of just like free shit that you're just giving out, you know, about everything. Um, and your YouTube channel, your blog, you know, things that people can go on your website. Literally, guys, you can like go on our website. There's links of things that you can print out for free. And she even says like in, you know, copyright, it's just like, do what you will with it. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan, signing off. <laughs>